Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today's broadcast is entitled, Our Underutilized Weapon. Last week, we spoke on why we need the church in 2022. And just to review that message and some of the points that we made as we set up our message and the subject that we want to speak about today, we are in a period of decline as it relates to church attendance and church membership in the United States. Now, this is something that's been going on for years and years, decades, in fact, but in the post-COVID-19 pandemic era of America, church attendance has taken an even greater hit. We talked about some of the reasons behind this last week. We looked at the fact that we're a very wealthy country, and wealth is often not associated with spiritual health and spiritual maturity. We consider the fact that most modern churches today are more interested in a lot of entertainment and a little bit of Bible or a little bit of doctrine, if doctrine's even emphasized at all. And we also consider the fact that less than half of pastors had a biblical worldview, and only 12% of youth pastors had a biblical worldview. Certainly, that will not go without its consequences in the church at large in the United States of America either. And then we considered some of the reasons that the church is so important in our lives. The word church means assembly, and this word church comes from an old English word, kirk, which means the Lord's house. And so the Lord's house is an assembly. The assembly is the Lord's house. Church is important because it's the Lord's house. Number two, we talked about the fact that church is important because Jesus built it as a place of worship to his glory. If Jesus built the church and he's our Savior, he's the risen, reigning Christ, the second person of the Godhead incarnate, made flesh, then church is an important place. And as such, it's a place of worship to his glory, world without end. Amen. It will always be here as a place that should worship God to the glory of God through Christ. Number three, the church is an institution that upholds the truth. It protects it. It disseminates the truth. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. And as such, point number four from last week, it's an institution that is to make disciples. The ministry of the Word is to go and to make students. We find God's children, and we gather them. We make learners out of them. They are to be discipled, and one of our chief duties as gospel preachers is to be just that, discipling the Lord's people. Also, we considered, number five, that the church shows Christ's death through the two ordinances that he placed within the church. We have, first of all, baptism, which represents a death, a burial, and a resurrection, not only, and of course, chiefly, the resurrection of Christ, but also that we're dying to self, and we're rising to walk in a newness of life, as it were. We've been converted, we're going to follow Christ, and we're publicly devoting ourselves to following Him. And we also have communion that shows His death in the unleavened bread and the wine, representing the sin-free body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, the church provides a life-altering, beneficial service to believers. First of all, as we hear preaching, this preaching of the Word furnishes us unto all good works as the Word of God truly furnishes us. We have a thorough furnishing, as it were, to good works. We know doctrine and correction and 
reproof and instruction in righteousness through what we hear in gospel preaching. How can we know the word except some man should guide us? As the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip the evangelist in the book of Acts chapter 8, and the church as an organization, it fulfills that. It provides that service to us. And then we also receive a life-altering beneficial service as believers as we worship, and through praising God and worshiping, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, we're filled with the Spirit in our lives as we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as Ephesians chapter 5 says. And then lastly, number seven from last week, the church provides a family for us and accountability. We have fellowship, and because of that, we're not alone in this world, but we have true brothers and sisters, friends that we have more in common with because of the gospel, because of Christ, than we have in common with anyone else in the world. And so the church is a very, very important institution in the lives of God's people. Today we want to focus on one extraordinarily important role of the church in our lives, and that is a place of collective prayer. Prayer is often emphasized in Scripture as being so crucial to our daily lives and the health of our churches, but we are so very guilty of underutilizing this resource. And I have to tell you that I am one who is guilty of this. I forget sometimes to pray. When I do pray, it might not be the quality of prayer that I need. And I'm always amazed, but at the same time stricken with remorse and guilt when I do devote some lengthy period of time to prayer and immediately things begin to happen in the world. Now, we've all been there in those moments where we're like Peter sinking in the water, Lord, save, I perish, and the Lord reaches down and he lifts us up, he saves, and we didn't perish. Whatever it is that we were facing in this world, like Peter was facing the water, drowning him, we've experienced various things in this life that might be threatening to us, and we call out to God, and he hears us, and he delivers. And we're very thankful for that. But I can just tell you that there are times that I've prayed specifically with intent and focus on specific needs, and God will provide that. One such thing that I've been practicing again recently that I had gotten out of the habit of doing is praying for specific people in the community that God would bless them to be a part of our church. And I run a a list of people that I pray for that's not original to me. I got that from men who mentored me. But if you make a list, and I would encourage you to do this, especially if you're a pastor, write a list of people you know in your community that you would like to visit your church, people that God would place on your heart. Ask him to place people on your heart and then pray for those people. And so many times I have seen that happen where I pray for somebody and then lo and behold, they're at church the next week. Or I begin to pray that God would move upon some people who attend our church, who haven't yet professed him before men and been baptized in his name. And lo and behold, they'll have a Bible conversation with me the next week where they've never discussed a Bible thing with me before. God answers prayer. And when we ask through the Holy Spirit, in the name of his Son, to the Father, if it's in the Father's will, well, he'll grant us that for which we pray. James reminds us that we have not because we ask not. And I so often feel guilty When I don't ask, and I realize that had I been asking all along, God would have given me things that I stood in need of, I just lament when that happens, and it does so often happen in my life. Just to emphasize the importance of prayer with you today in the life of a disciple, I want to share just a few passages of Scripture that we all know. In the book of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable 
this parable of the unjust judge. He's not a God-fearing judge. He doesn't regard man. He's pretty much just a narcissistic tyrant who does what he wants to do. And this poor widow woman comes to him, and she cries out unto him over and over again, avenge me of my adversary. And the judge wouldn't for a while, but he grew tired of this woman's constant complaints to him. And then finally, he says, though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She's just getting on my nerves, and so because she asks me over and over again, I'm just going to give in and do what she says because she's bothering me. And he goes and he avenges her. Well, Jesus says, hear what the unjust judge has said, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? God is not unjust. God is not like this narcissistic, wicked judge that doesn't fear God and he doesn't regard man. God loves his elect, and when they cry unto him, if an unjust judge, because he's annoyed at listening to a woman who constantly complains, if an unjust judge will give her what she asks, don't you think a God that loves you and cares for you and sent his son to die for you will answer when you ask? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Now, Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, we read, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The reason God gave that parable is more a lesson about prayer than it is vengeance, even though there's vengeance in here as well. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him, though he bear long with them? Yes, God will avenge his own elect, but this parable is to the end that we pray, that we pray often. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in the book of First Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 17, pray without ceasing, and then turns around just a few verses later and says, pray for us, brethren. Brethren, pray for us. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray always and never to faint. In the book of James chapter 5, there's famous language that we all could probably quote, if not verbatim, we could usually paraphrase it, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Well, it availeth much. It avails much in our lives. James would say in James chapter 5, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Now notice this word here, among, among, among. This is referring to people being gathered collectively. Is any sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. That's a gathering where you pray over someone, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I believe oil there has reference to medicine, not some sort of a special magic oil, but oil in that day was used as medicine. And as medicine is administered when someone is sick, certainly the elders should gather and pray over that individual. Please, by all means, pray over that individual. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Have you noticed how many times the word prayer has been discussed in these few verses? Confess your faults, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. What is the theme of these passages? Well, the theme is prayer. That if we're sick, pray. If we're discouraged, pray. 
if we're afflicted, pray. If you see someone in the church afflicted or sick or discouraged, pray for them as we confess our faults and we'll find healing because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That example he used is Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. He's a man subject to like passions, just like you and me. He was a regular man. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't the Lord. He was just a man. And he prayed, though he's subject to like passions, as we are. And God withheld rain for three and a half years as a judgment. Then he prayed again, and God gave the rain. He answered that prayer that Elijah had prayed. If God does that in Elijah's life, he'll do that in your life, and he'll do that in my life. Even Jesus, our Lord, God incarnate, the Word that was made flesh, even Jesus prayed with the cross in view in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes and he falls on his face three times leading up to the cross, understanding the anguish and the agony he would experience. He is troubled in that. He's not trying to get out of it, but knowing what he's about to experience. He is of great anguish of soul, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood when he prayed. But, beloved, he prayed. He prayed, and he prayed. He tells the disciples to watch and to pray, because their spirits are willing, but their flesh is indeed weak. Jesus is not, but they are, and they should pray lest they enter into temptation. Prayer is so important to the child of God. Look at the importance of prayer as it's something that even our Lord did before he went to the cross of Calvary. But what about collective prayer? That might have reference to you and me entering into our prayer closet and praying to God, asking for our needs, praying before a meal. What about collective prayer? What about the church getting together and praying to God? Is that something that we should do? Occasionally you hear of some sort of an oddball idea that, collective prayers discouraged, because we certainly wouldn't want to look like those that we'll make mention of in a moment that stand on the street corners and pray to be seen of men. And that's certainly true. We don't want to look like that. But just because Jesus discourages people from praying publicly to have the reputation that they're holy people, that doesn't mean that collective prayer is wrong. Quite the contrary. Notice this from the book of Matthew chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse 12. Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus goes into the temple. This is after the triumphal entry. This is the week of his crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem. He goes into his house. Most of his ministry was not spent in Jerusalem. It occurred near the Sea of Galilee. And he goes into that holy city. He goes into his house, and he purges it. This is the second time he would do this in his ministry. John's gospel refers to him doing this, records him doing this earlier in his ministry as he began his ministry. And in that, he takes a scourge, a cord of reeds, and he binds them together, he flips the tables, he chases the animals out, striking the whip to drive them out of the gates of this temple. Jesus sees what's happening here, and he's absolutely livid with a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. Now, there are times in our lives that it calls for a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. As wicked men go in and do terrible things to little children, that calls for righteous anger. 
When a man abuses a child, that calls for a righteous anger. When a man abuses a woman, that calls for a righteous anger. When someone, a cruel dictator, invades another country and commits slaughter of innocent people that are simply living their lives in their country according to their way of life, that's a cause for righteous indignation. Righteous anger is a thing in the world, and it is not sin. The problem with you and the problem with me is that so often sin hijacks that anger. And unlike Jesus' indignation, which is righteous, we suddenly digress into, we devolve, we decay or degrade into a sort of sinful anger where we do things we shouldn't do, we say things that we shouldn't say. But Jesus is livid here with a righteous indignation. He's angry because the people that he sees are buying and selling animals in the temple. Now, it's not wrong to buy and sell animals. Jesus, in the law, gave ways to regulate that. And there are principles in the New Testament that would regulate that. A workman is worthy of his reward, we read in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But in the house of God, you're not to sell merchandise capitalizing on the needs of God's people to fulfill the law that God had given them. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, these people are commanded to sacrifice these animals. They have no choice. God's commanded them to do that. They have to do that. But if they're coming from a great distance away, you can't bring the oxen that you need. If you're traveling from some great distance, and the Jews at this point are scattered throughout much of the known world at that time, as they make their pilgrimages back to the holy city, there's absolutely no way they can bring all the animals that they're supposed to bring. So there in the temple, you have these people setting up shop who are selling the animals because they had nowhere else to buy them and Basically, they were just taking advantage of their necessity, a necessity caused by God's commandments to go and to sacrifice, and that offends him. But beyond that, as these people come from great distances away, they have other types of currency. And so people here in Jerusalem would say, ah, here, I'm a money changer. I'll take your currency from this nation, and I'll convert it to the currency that these guys over here selling the oxen and the sheep and the goats and the turtle doves and these other animals for. They won't take your money, but... Here, I'll convert it to this other type of money that they will take, but I'm going to add to it. I'm going to add a fee on top of it. And basically, they're making money off the need of God's people when God's people have come to worship. And what Jesus does is he basically says, you have made my house a house of merchandise. Now, to be very clear, there were people in the house of God, the priests, who were to be supported by the treasury in the house of God. That's not wrong. But they weren't to become rich doing that. And these other people, these peddlers, they had no commandment in the law to go and do what they did. And Jesus was offended at them. Yeah, the priests were to eat of the showbread and to live of the tithes that God gave in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that these other people should be there buying and selling and exchanging the money and making a good profit off of the need of God's people. There might have been places where that would have been appropriate, but not here. Not here. God was so concerned about this in the Old Testament law that the Israelites were not even allowed to charge one another usury or interest on the money that they borrowed. So he doesn't want them taking advantage of one another. That's very clear in the law of God. And yet these people, well, they have made his house a house of merchandise. And what does he say? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer But ye have made it a den of thieves, because these peddlers were there buying and selling and changing the money, preying on God's people. They had made God's house a den of thieves. 
God's house was supposed to be a house of prayer. Now, you notice when he had purged the temple and driven these people away, it's interesting what happens. The first thing that happens, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, that's amazing. You get out all these peddlers, and you get the thieves, and you get the wolves out of the house of God, and all of a sudden, the poor and the blind and the lame, they can come to Jesus. They have access to him now because he purged these other people from his house. And then amazingly, after this, children come to him in the temple, and they cry out, Hosanna, which is a single word that transliterates from Yashaana from Psalm 118, which is literally, it translates in our KJVs as, save us, Lord, save us. So these children come and they begin crying, Hosanna to the son of David. And these other people were sore displeased, and they're angry with what Jesus is doing and the worship that he's receiving. But notice what he describes his church in Matthew 21, 13. My house shall be called what? A house of prayer. This is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. And in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, we read that his church, his house, is to be a house of prayer to all people. Now, that's amazing. Not just the wealthy, not just the nation of Israel, but his true house, the New Testament church, the church that Jesus built, the pillar and ground of the truth, it is to be a house of prayer for all people, for male and female, Jew and Greek, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, it doesn't matter their ethnicity or their nationality. All people, all sorts of people, all types of people can come and pray in the house of God. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. No, non-Jews could not go into the inner courts of his temple. There was a gate, and beyond that gate, Gentiles were not allowed to pass. There was a stone marker written in Greek saying that any Gentile that passed beyond that was subject to death. Women could only go so far. They could not go as far as the men into the temple of God. But in this day, in the church, we all have uninterrupted, unfiltered access, full access to this church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The veil in the temple has been rent from top to bottom. The holiest of the holies in Jerusalem is not where God dwells anymore. And we can all go and be with him in his house. But what is his house? Did you catch what he described it as in Matthew 21 and verse 13? It is a house of prayer. Yes, the church is to be a place of collective prayer. God's intent for the church is to be a place of real, effectual, fervent, collective prayer offered by those who worship him. Now, again, the caveat from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, we don't want to stand and pray to be seen of men. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. They may be seen of men. Really, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Well, as it relates to personal prayer, I'm not going to drive to downtown Huntsville, stand up on a street corner, and go through my laundry list of prayer, things that I'm asking the Lord for. Rather, I should go into my closet. Now, that being said, there might be a time for going downtown to the courthouse and praying an imprecatory prayer. I think that it's very arguable that that sort of thing, that sort of prophet ministry from the Old Testament from time to time in our culture is warranted and needed. And perhaps it should be followed by some preaching and some sermons. Public preaching, and I mean downtown public preaching, is something that our forefathers did, the apostles did, and there are times that we probably need to reclaim that heritage in our day and age. 
I guarantee you one thing, we've lost in not practicing it. And if we practiced it, while it might bring personal ruin to us and persecution, there will be no harm done in it. It's a good thing for good gospel sound preachers to do. But we don't want to do any of that to be seen as men and perceived as religious. But the church isn't standing on a street corner praying. The church is a collective assembly of people that come together for the purpose of praying together. Now, I have three examples of this from the Word of God that I want to share with you before we bring our broadcast today to a close. The church is to be a house of prayer. The church is the people, not the building. We're all lively stones built upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're stones, rocks in the house of God built through the revelation of Christ from His Father to us. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it, but our Father which is in heaven. And as lively stones, we are built up a spiritual habitation, a temple of the Lord. As a house, we are to be a house of prayer. In Acts chapter 4, after the church first began experiencing some persecution, the apostles gathered after they were let go, those who had been arrested and threatened. They lifted up their voice with one accord, and they prayed. This is Acts 4.24. Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or his anointed. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. What did they just do? They prayed to God to intercede on their behalf in this moment of persecution. Lord, we come before you and we gather all together in prayer. Now listen to this. When they had prayed, these apostles and all the other disciples with them, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. When trouble came to the church, what are they doing? They're gathering together and they're praying. In a similar time of persecution, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, Herod stretched forth his hand to vex the church, and he went as far as to kill, to behead James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of the apostle John, who wrote the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. His brother James is murdered, martyred by this wicked king, Herod. Well, Herod apprehends Peter. He arrests Peter, and he was going to execute him after the days of unleavened bread. God would not have that. He sends an angel. The angel delivers Peter out of jail. Peter thinks it's a vision. And he comes to the house of one Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, a different John, John Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Peter walks to the house of this Mary. The angel has delivered him out of jail. What is the church doing together? They had gathered there praying. Because James, an apostle, had been killed, and Peter, another apostle, was arrested awaiting execution, the church came together to pray. What are they doing? They're the house of prayer. They're collectively praying to God. Let me tell you, 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What happens when many of God's righteous saints gather together to beg God to pray that he would intercede in a situation? Well, God hears, and if they ask according to his will, God will answer. Years ago, I was at a minister's meeting in the state of Georgia, and they were in a serious drought there. As we gathered to pray, one of the things that we did was to pray that God would bless with rain. And would you believe, as I drove away from that building at the end of the day, some drops of rain began to hit the windshield of my car. And I thought, Lord, there it is. It was asked for, and you have provided. I can tell you over and over in my life, when I have prayed, especially in a collective group like that, God hears as we effectively pray, as we mean it, as we're fervent. He hears and he answers. And this is one of our most underutilized weapons in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we hit our knees and pray in our assemblies. May we understand that this is one of the many reasons why we need to be a part of God's house in the first place. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.